being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong by july 1984 lake and ang were reunited and they proceeded to carry out operation miranda interestingly lake had been making daily entries into his diary for over a year like a year and a half upon ing's return lake stopped recording his activities two months later he would start again there's a two-month gap which lake explained cryptically writing the missing entries were allowed a period of time to pass that were best left unrecorded we can speculate as to why maybe later it's believed that this period of time included Lakening targeting and killing a homosexual DJ in San Francisco. I mean like a radio DJ. Lakening also targeted the owners of a local video recording business. And I mean an entire family. Lakening would abduct them in order to acquire their video equipment. As well as, you know, potentially for various other reasons. I'll discuss the fate of the family a little bit later. Lakening relocated to an apartment complex known as the Pink Palace in the Haight-Ashbury district. It's not entirely clear what they were doing, but as far as anyone can tell, they were selling weed, sometimes ripping people off, buying people's trust with weed, abducting hippies, and drifters and people who wouldn't really be looked for by the system. It's terrifying to think of them as just, like, body snatchers, right? Leonard Lake used a bunch of different identities at this time. Aang used some, but fewer. I think his main one was Mike Komodo. Aang got a job at a warehouse and moving company. After this missing two-month gap in Lake's diary, Lake began writing again, saying he had learned, quote, several items of interesting personal value. He also said this, quote, I have learned that my programming in my youth, that which is called morality, either was not given or was given poorly. To all purposes, save a very few, I have no morality. Accepted as a fact, in terms of life or death, neither seems to move me. Unquote. The programming of my youth, right? Lake continues saying, the past two months saw Miranda come to fruit. That taught me more. The perfect woman is one who is totally controlled. A woman who does exactly what she is told and nothing else. There are no sexual problems with a totally submissive woman. There are no frustrations. There is only pleasure and contentment. I have observed, I believe, one woman who found this not only acceptable, but even desirable. I doubt this will be the norm. And in this case, the woman's low mentality probably affected the discovery. A whore, druggy, and fool. Still, I enjoyed using her, and seemingly she enjoyed the use. I do hope I do better next time, however. The Pink Palace 1 and 2 helped with money and sex. Unquote. The identity and fate of the woman Lake is referring to was never clearly identified. In September 1984, Lake Ning ripped off more marijuana farmers at the ranch commune, obtaining two grocery bags full of weed, low-grade weed. Another diary entry on October 15, 1984, circumspectly says, coordinated with three and completed op, pulled off with no hitch. It is routine now. Sweat, dirt, but no regrets, unquote. It's not clear, but this appears to refer to an abduction and murder. November 1st, 1984, Lake and Ng arranged to meet a man who was selling his car. They abducted and killed him and stole his car. Ng kept working at the moving company, but he kind of started weirding everyone out by chanting, as in marine chants, like marching, right? No gun, no fun. He would just shout that as he was like moving boxes or whatever, he would also chant, no kill, no thrill. And the one that unnerved everyone the most was the chant, daddy dies, mommy cries, baby fries. 
Around this time, Leonard Lake took a contracting job under the table, refurbishing someone's bathroom. For some reason, Lake left a bag at the house of this, like, random family, and of course the couple looked in it, and they found a woman's negligee, videotapes, a book on bondage, and other weird shit. It's like everywhere they went, there was just they were just like walking red alarm sirens, just as loud as possible. Now, I don't know if you, dear listener, have heard about the Guardian Angels, the weird group that would wear red berets and patrol around New York City subways. They would make citizens arrest and so forth. (laughs) Well, early on in the history of the group, there was this guy, Scott Stapley. He was the son of an IBM executive. Stapley was kind of a big deal in the Guardian Angels, actually. He worked directly with the founder, Curtis Slewa, and he personally established new chapters in Las Vegas, Hollywood, Beverly Hills, San Francisco, and Oakland. As in this Stapley guy, right? Well, Lake and Ng abducted, murdered, and stole his identity. It was this identity, actually, that Lake was using back when he got arrested in association with the shoplifting incident that I mentioned, you know, at the start of the story. Interestingly, Stapley and several other victims had ties to elder care facilities. I wonder if Lake and Aang engaged in identity fraud schemes, learned identity fraud from any of these people, or possibly targeted them on that basis. Lake and Aang also abducted one of Aang's co-workers at the moving company. They also abducted another young woman. You know, I go back and forth on whether I should name any of these victims. I don't always want to, but in this case, it, you know, clarifies things. So this woman that they abducted was named Kathy Allen. Lake and Aang told Kathy that her boyfriend, who they did vaguely know, had just been shot. And that's the pretext they used to get her in the car with them to abduct her. Now it's time to discuss the bunker, and Kathy Allen is the time to do it, unfortunately, because the videos with her were the majority of the evidence that would be used in the trial. Now I'm not going to read the transcripts, they are awful, but I will describe in general terms what's supposed to be on the main video that the authorities took from the home. It's horrific, but, and I note this, it's curiously narrow, or curiously um, watchable, I guess, compared to all of the other shit that could, you know, be out there. And if this were, like, a clear choice that the prosecutors made, like, we're going to show you this tape, not the one with... I'll discuss, I'll discuss this question in a little bit. But on this tape, the tape that was used in the court trial. There are three different instances of recording. On the first instance, you can see Kathy Allen in the Wilseyville cabin, handcuffed. Lake and Ng are talking to her. They explain that her boyfriend owed them money, so they took her hostage. The entire time, there's there's this pretext that this abduction would be temporary, that she would eventually be released, which is probably a method by which they kept their victims from fighting back via the illusion of an end or a limited period of suffering. They also extorted her into agreeing to their demands, which probably is like a mindfuck, basically. On the video, they seem to use various stupid psychological tricks. Like, I don't know exactly. It seems like maybe pickup artists or like pimp tactics. Like, I'm not an expert on this. Like, I read Iceberg Slim once years ago, but like, It seems like that's what they're doing. Something along those lines. Maybe some quasi-BDSM stuff, but obviously of the dark, non-consensual variety, right? In the second instance of footage, Kathy is seen giving Aang a massage. In the third video, Kathy is seen wearing lingerie while Leonard Lake takes pictures of her. Then, in the video, Lake and Aang engage her in conversation giving her various instructions, and the video ends. Now, it's very tricky to talk about this, because the trial only showed one tape, but by all accounts, there were a lot of people testifying that there were many, many more tapes. 
have an article from a newspaper that describes detectives on the record mentioning that there were tapes showing sexual assaults, including ones where you could hear children screaming in the background. Also, there were said to be tapes containing child porn. Dave McGowan points out that the content of these tapes have never been revealed or shown to anyone, which is curious because, like, yeah, obviously no one's asking for them to be released to the public, but, like, there is a weird, weird ambiguity as to what is depicted, how many tapes are there, and there should be no ambiguity whatsoever. Like, even if there were just, like, you know, broken down this many tapes that contained this, there's none of that. It's just, like, vague innuendo and, like, secondhand reports from detectives talking about other tapes, like, no transparency. Also, reportedly, they found tapes at the former residence of Charles Ng, the contents of which were also not revealed. Additionally, they reportedly found photos of children which were taken at the juvenile hall that Cricket worked at in Philo. And I mean, like, photographs, right? Now, McGowan cites there being videotapes where Lake is actually speaking to his mother, Cricket, and Cricket's parents, and he lays out his plan for the coming Armageddon. McGowan says that Lake saw himself as a new Adam, and he spoke of building a series of bunkers, each to be stocked with food and weapons and staffed with a sex slave. These slaves were to serve as the mothers of the New World Order that would arise from the ashes of Armageddon. The Wilseyville structure was apparently the prototype for a planned network of bunkers." Unquote. A shrink and serial killer expert named Joel Norris wrote that Lake and Aang produced many videos, including snuff films. He's the source of that claim. To my knowledge, you know, I have spent a lot of time trying to track, you know, McGowan and Norris's claims. It is very hard to tell what is true. And I don't mean, like, I'm doubting McGowan. I'm saying, like, there's no reason for there to be this ambiguity. None of these other tapes were ever produced in court. McGowan argues that the most logical reason is because other videos show either Aang with someone else other than Lake, or possibly they don't show Aang participating at all. So, like we mentioned up at the top of the story, Lake and Aang went to go shoplift June 2nd, 1985. Lake was arrested, took a cyanide pill, died in police custody, or you know, died a few days later. Aang escaped and made his way to Canada. From here on out, it's a story of the authorities unraveling their crimes. That story doesn't interest me as much, but there are a few key points to go through. First, as the San Francisco Police Department tried to figure out what was going on, they phoned Cricket to let her know that Leonard Lake was in a coma. They said that she did not seem particularly upset by the news. The San Francisco Police Department decided to send missing persons detectives out to check out the Wilseyville cabin. They were still thinking this was a missing persons case with some weird angles to it. When they arrived, they thought it was weird that Leonard Lake's mother and sisters were there. When Cricket took the SFPD to the cabin for the first time, <laughs> Leonard Lake's mother accompanied them, if you can believe that. Cricket told the authorities that she had arrived the previous night to, quote, remove a few personal things that would embarrass her if the police found them, unquote which included about a dozen videotapes. For some reason, the San Francisco Police Department didn't arrest them on the spot for tampering with evidence. To be fair, I guess, at this juncture, they didn't know that they were looking at dozens and dozens of bodies, but still, very suspicious. The story was that Cricket brought the tapes back, like she took tapes and then brought them back, but there's no way of knowing if she, you know, erased tapes or if she destroyed, what did she destroy? Cricket stuck to her story and said she didn't want to risk them finding and confiscating pictures, videotapes, and other personal items. 
it's also worth noting that from this point on, there's a curiously high number of Navy veterans who get brought in to deal with the Lake and Ng situation, including a Navy veteran turned San Francisco Police Department missing persons detective, who was the first person to investigate the cabin. These officers, when they first arrived in the cabin, one of them, who had been on the vice squad, ran his hand over a door frame and found pills. I guess that's a junkie trick or something. He thought he had found drugs, but it was actually cyanide pills. They went and checked the bedrooms and found beds and walls with eye bolts, such that you could bind, tie, and handcuff people. So they were thinking, okay, these are like freaks, right? The living room had a wall with a mural of a forest scene. They found video cassettes and sophisticated video duplicator equipment. When Cricket saw that the police were looking at the video equipment, she asked them to leave. The officers wrote down some of the serial numbers on the equipment before they left. Then they called the district attorney to obtain a search warrant. Wouldn't you know the serial numbers matched the video equipment from that missing family that had the video equipment stolen? And of course they, you know, went missing. That, of course, was their smoking gun, so they obtained a full search warrant. So at this juncture, they're thinking, okay, this is a missing person's case plus murder. They still, supposedly at least, didn't understand the gravity of the situation. As they executed the search warrant, they questioned Cricket and Gloria, Leonard Lake's mom. And she confessed that she and Cricket had, quote, cleaned the house the night before. The team executing this search warrant thought, you know, pretty normally that they would be there a day, maybe two days. They had no idea that they would end up spending a full month at this crime scene. The team also noticed, obviously, that there was a tool shed workshop. They didn't know there was a bunker in there. When they entered the tool shed workshop, they saw a bunch of construction tools, they saw a wall of photos of naked women, they realized that many of them were taken by someone like Lake, right? And then they realized that the room was like too small, then how big it would look from the outside. And they found a hidden door, so they got another search warrant and then they opened the hidden door to the bunker. They found a soundproofed rectangular chamber, which the investigators perhaps incorrectly designated as the living area. It contained a bed, table, dresser, shelves, and bookshelf, including a copy of The Collector by John Fowles. There was a wooden plaque which read Operation Miranda on the wall, then at one end of the area there was a cell behind wooden walls and there was also like a one-way mirror situation to look into the cell. Investigators looked in the cell and found on the wall a piece of paper which wrote out the rules. These rules 1 through 6 read as follows. 1. I must always be ready to service my master. I must be clean, brushed, and made up with my cell neat. 2. I must never speak unless spoken to. Unless in bed, I must never look my master in the eye, but must keep my eyes downcast. 3. I must never show disrespect, either verbally or silent. I must never cross my arms or legs in front of my body, or clench my fists. And unless eating, must always keep my lips parted. 4. I must be obedient completely and in all things. I must obey immediately and without question or comment. 5. I must always be quiet when locked in my cell. 6. I must remember and obey any additional rules told to me. I must understand that any disobedience, any pain, trouble, or annoyance caused by me to my master will be grounds for punishment. Investigators found a sealed plastic 5-gallon paint bucket which had photo albums of nude women, Lake's journal, and several videotapes one which was labeled with the letter M, and which had written M ladies, comma, Kathy slash Brenda. Early on, while still searching the property, they watched the video, which contained the aforementioned Kathy Allen footage 
of her, you know, going through the stuff I mentioned before. And in combination, like from the video and the cell and the freaking rules and shit, that's when the investigators understood exactly what they were dealing with. Shortly after that, one of the police search dogs trotted back up to its handler with a human femur in its mouth. After that, the local police chief released a statement saying, quote, this may be a case of mass murder or a cult situation. A cult case is a possibility we're not going to exclude at this time, unquote. Dave McGowan points out that this prompted the Department of Justice and the FBI to come in, wherein the story changed to Leonard Lake and Charles Ng being solely responsible. So I'll just come out and say it. For whatever reason, the game seems to be for authorities to say operations like Lake and Ng's are discrete, somewhat stochastic events unrelated to any broader networks. My game, and it's not like a fun game, is to argue that there is, in fact, broader networks, for lack of a better term. That said, I don't invent any evidence, right? Allow me to argue the case with the existing evidence that we have. There is a huge reason to assume that Cricket covered up her role at a bare minimum, but going off of what's left of the evidence, there is still enough to suggest a larger conspiracy beyond Chess Cricket. If the authorities are to be believed, there were no snuff films. I think that there's more than enough reason to doubt that. The police identified at least 21 missing women in the tapes and photographs that were recovered. Six women identified in the tapes were eventually found alive, which suggests trading and moving of sex slaves. I mean, it pretty much requires that, which raises all sorts of questions. In two of the videos of victims, this one with a woman named Brenda, so that was, you know, Kathy and Brenda, the film shows them engaged in a conversation with her. I will quote a portion of this conversation, and for context you need to know that they are playing mind games with her. They're arguing that they kidnapped her over some debt that her boyfriend owed them. You know, similar to Kathy. It starts with Brenda asking, is that why you invited us over here? Lake says, uh-huh. Aang says, it's part of the game. Lake says, you guys have been such assholes, Brenda. You know Lonnie, the boyfriend, hasn't been all that bad. I'll give you that, except for his shooting. But you've been an asshole like I can't believe. You've been so damn rude and for no reason that I can figure. Brenda says, because I can't stand it up here. It's in the middle of nowhere. Lake says, ah. Brenda says, are you going to keep me up here the rest of my life or something? Lake says, no. To be honest with you, I probably won't keep you here for more than a few weeks. But, uh, after that, we'll probably pass you around. There's other. And then Brenda looks at a lamp in her cell and says, that light's hot. Lake says, it's, uh, there's people that are going to want to know that we did our job. There's already some other guys that took Lonnie and Scott away. Now it goes without saying that you can't trust Lake and Aang, and of course they were doing mind games with her, but they were pretty much saying right there that there were other people involved. You can't trust it, but, you know, let's consider whether there is other evidence. So as the police searched the estate all over the forest of the cabin, Ants would carry what looked like white gravel. It's actually, it was maggot larvae, suggesting that there was rotting flesh all over the forest. The search teams found hundreds and hundreds of bone fragments, including portions of human spine and teeth, all over. Some bodies were recovered, which had ball gags in their mouths. Police found a third body, a drifter from San Francisco killed by cyanide. The search team found the remains of two different African-American men, one of whom would never be identified. The other was a missing person from the Pink Palace in the Haight-Ashbury district. They would later recover his ID buried in the ground. 
they also kept finding plastic barrels all over the estate full of cash, gold, jewelry, journals, stolen identification from various victims. This is interesting. The police say they recovered Leonard Lake's journals from 1983 and 1984, but never found his journal for 1985, they say. Now this is the time to talk about possibly the worst aspect of Lake and Ng's crimes, as if the rape, torture, as if that weren't enough. The family they abducted, partially to obtain their video equipment, they had a baby. There was another family they took out that also had a baby. The police kept expecting to find two baby corpses. They never found the remains of any babies. You have to ask yourself, either they killed the infants or they sold them. There's evidence pointing to the former, not much evidence pointing to the latter, but it's entirely within the realm of possibility, right? Or like an Aang involved in some sort of like Nazi Moloch type shit? Supporting that thesis, the police found a charred piece of human liver which the coroners and outside experts argued came from a child around the age of three to seven years old. What was incredibly distressing to them was that they did not know of any victims that would be a child of eight, you know, between the ages of three to seven. There were only the two babies that they knew about. They also found a pair of handcuffs that had been scorched by fire, which suggested another as yet unidentified victim. They found more videotapes. One was labeled just the word taboo, and as far as they could tell, it was taped over, but investigators were able to find a split second at the very beginning of the video, which had not been taped over, wherein there's just an Really quick, there's just a single frame of bodies wrapped in plastic in sleeping bags, which presumably was the remaining video, you know, a portion of what they taped over. Not that long after, they found two bodies wrapped in plastic in sleeping bags. Now, I can hear you asking, did the police investigate cricket? They sure did. They hauled off six bags of evidence. We'll return to that.
Now, as the police had their hands full searching over a period of weeks through this estate, they found that Charles Ng had actually been arrested in Calgary, Canada. He had escaped to Canada, but he had more or less no money on him, and it's believed, probably correctly, that he didn't have, you know, a lot of resources because he was caught shoplifting again, incredibly. Apparently, Ng was just really bad at shoplifting. He had been caught shoplifting, and some citizens tried to, like, stop him, and he pulled a 22 handgun and shot a guy in the hand before a bunch of people jumped in and detained him. Now, it does occur to me that both Charles Ng and Richard Ramirez were actually caught not by the police, but by mobs of angry citizens. You heard it here first, folks. Program to Chill comes out strongly in favor of non-racist mob action. The authorities found that Ng had basically been homeless, like roughing it, camping, up in Calgary. Under police custody, Ng shit himself and then tried to hang himself with the soiled underwear, which would have been a fitting end to his life, but the guards stopped it and saved his life. Ng did not confess to being Ng at first, but the police found that he had a camera on him, which had been stolen from one of the Ng and Lake robberies. So, you know, the jig was up, like for sure they knew it was him. Ng eventually made a confession to the Canadian police, like a long one, but he only really confessed to being an accomplice to Lake. He did not confess to killing anyone. He also said, for what it's worth, that Lake killed one of the babies. By the way, dear listener, my least favorite part of these true crime books is the accounts of their trials. I still read them because weird things constantly happen in these trials. I'm just not very interested in legal defense strategies, prosecution, judges, like the whole thing. It's not my bag. It was interesting, though, because there was this whole legal debate going back and forth in Canadian society on whether Canada should allow Ng to be extradited because he faced the death penalty. Ultimately, he was extradited. Now, on Program to Chill, we know the truth about Canada, that it's three mining companies in a trench coat, as some people have said. It's, in some ways, dirtier than the United States, like in terms of their banking, their intelligence, their cops, even their interactions with indigenous people sometimes. And we get a little taste of that in this story because the Canadians had Ng for like a pretty long time, like three months, and they did some pretty interesting tricks. For example, they placed a guy in an isolation cell next to Charles Ng. This guy was named Maurice Joseph Laberge. He was a real sicko. LaBerge was a burglar and violent rapist who had gotten a 25-year sentence for some brutal crimes. To get out sooner, LaBerge became a jailhouse snitch. I think he had snitched before. But either way, LaBerge and Aang became friends. And LaBerge somehow convinced Aang to draw these horrific pornographic cartoons. And so... It's weird, like, they could actually pass things between their cells, and so they would pass these cartoons back and forth. And some of the cartoons depicted some of the crimes that Aang had confessed to, and those horrible cartoons would absolutely be used against Aang later on. One of the books, which I'll cite in a minute, said of the drawings, quote, Most of the vulgar drawings depicted explicit and obscene sexual activities, including rape, bestiality, and a wide range of perverted, deviant, carnal behavior." So LaBerge agreed to snitch, basically, in Canadian courts. His snitching got him a release date, contingent on him testifying in court against Aang, which he did. LaBerge appears to have gotten a bizarrely large amount of money to testify against Aang. I did not see a total, but I'll get to that in a second. Let's talk about some of the more horrible things that LaBerge testified that Aang told him. 
I am mostly going to focus on the things for which LaBerge is the only source. LaBerge testified to a wide range of things that would come up later in the court trial. Goes without saying we can't necessarily trust LaBerge's word either, but neither do I think he's lying. LaBerge said that Aang told him that he and Lake had hunted some of their victims, like a most dangerous game type of thing. LaBerge said that Aang told him that Aang had killed one of the babies. LaBerge said that Lake told Aang to kill one of the babies and said that Lake compared it to the Nazi SS raising a puppy and killing it upon graduation. LaBerge also described the death grip, which I do not have the heart to explain, though it raises all sorts of alarm bells in my mind regarding the band. Now, LaBerge testified in Canadian court where they had to establish not that Aang was guilty, but that he should be extradited. So the burden of proof is lower anyway. LaBerge's testimony was not going to be used in the U.S. trial, though the cartoons that he procured would be. But then, and we'll get to this, extremely curiously, Aang's defense team presented LaBerge's testimony by cross-examining Aang on each and every one of the horrific things LaBerge said. Now, at the expense of sounding like a broken record, I'm no big city lawyer, right? But that does not sound like a good defense strategy to me. LaBerge's testimony would not have made it into the U.S. trial, except for the defense testimony bringing it in, which is insane. So what happened to LaBerge? Well, for some reason, he was released, <laughs> and he was placed in witness protection. You might ask yourself, why would he need to be placed in witness protection if Aang had acted alone with Lake? Good question. Either way, LaBerge, in witness protection, <laughs> had been given a large amount of money, and on May 19, 1998, LaBerge picked up his snitch money, the last installment of it, which was, get this, $23,800 in cash, which means that he got more than that because that was the last installment. And so LaBerge was driving down a country road when he crashed his car and the car exploded. I legitimately don't know what happened with LaBerge, but whatever it was, it sounds fucked up. And it certainly raises the question about broader networks. Now, Ng was held at Folsom Prison before his trial. Ng proved extremely adept at tying up and delaying his own case. One of his favorite strategies was firing his lawyers. He did that a bunch of times. He would go through 10 different lawyers, I believe. One of his lawyers would be, later, Richard Ramirez's lawyer. Now, I believe that the trial took place a full 13 years from when Ng was first apprehended in Canada. Ng also proved very devious, like another prison snitch who got close to Ng told the authorities that Ng had a hit list of people he wanted killed who ought to delay his trial. Left unstated was the assumption that there was anyone who would kill on the outside for Ng. Again, sort of pointing to a network or something, right? This snitch also said that if the hit list didn't work, Ng had a plan to kill a prison guard, which would delay Ng's execution, resulting from the first trial. In the preliminary trial, the judge issued a gag order, which meant that the public only ever heard the prosecution's case, not the defense. Curious, right? The trial would cost the state of California $20 million. It was one of the most expensive trials in the state's history. I think that's still the case. One of the reporters who attended the whole trial was a Marine Corps veteran who fought in Vietnam. The judge, named Jack Ryan, if you can believe that, also served 12 years in the Marine Corps. The trial raised the possibility that Ng may have killed a woman in Hawaii which was an unsolved shooting at a car rental agency. Also, interestingly, I believe the jurors did not hear about Ng's story of the circumstances as to why he was sent to Leavenworth for stealing military weaponry. 
The trial also pointed to even more murders during the Philo period, including that six months when Lake and Aang were together like the first time, right? During the trial, there was testimony that discussed how Lake and Aang attempted to use behavioral modification to create sex slaves. Another witness, a woman who knew Lake when he lived in Ukiah, discussed Lake's belief in human sacrifice. It sure would be fucked up if, say, there were any books sold through Soldier of Fortune specifically that discussed ritual murder, right? You know, Lake loving Soldier of Fortune and all. Now, I won't dwell too much on the defense strategy except to say that they focused on arguing that Leonard Lake was the mastermind, the real misogynist, and the murderer in every case, and that Aang was simply a guilty accomplice. Guilty, sure, but to a lesser degree. They tried to argue also that Cricket was as much an accomplice as Aang was, which was very true in some ways. We'll get to that. The argument was undermined by all the evidence, obviously, that Aang participated, but also the fact that Lake did in fact have normal, friendly relationships with a bunch of women in his life, including his mom, his sisters, a number of women who were never targeted. So here's another interesting thing, and I think this speaks volumes. Cricket was called to the stand, but then neither the prosecution nor the defense asked her a single question. Halfway through the case, a new judge and new attorneys were appointed on both sides, which was irregular. There was literally six physical tons of evidence, but wouldn't you know, 500 pages of police reports were missing. Everything pertaining to the Department of Justice's investigation was missing too. McGowan states that 13 boxes of critical evidence were shredded. We do know that the police recovered over 100 videotapes. Again, only one was shown on trial, and to my knowledge, no official, like, statement was ever made about more than just, like, two or three tapes, period. Now, when the jurors were deliberating, like, at the end of the trial, on a weekend, I believe, Charles Aang called one of the jurors. The juror answered the phone, and there's this little transcript here where the juror says hello, and Ng says, is this Karen Barrett? And the, the juror named Karen says, well, who is this? Ng says, I need to know if this is the Karen Barrett I know. The juror says, who is this? Ng said, this is Charles. The juror said, Charles who? Ng said, I need to know if this is the Karen I know on the jury. The juror said, is this Charles Ng? Ng said, oh, I'm sorry, I just wanted to tell you I think you are very nice. The juror said, well, I can't, you know, how did you get my number? How did you get a hold of me? Ng said, I had a friend help me. The juror said, you can't talk to me. How freaking nuts is that, man? Like, how, how did Ng have a juror's phone number? Did he have contacts on the outside? Who was helping him? How on earth could he have gotten her phone number? It's impossible. I think it's highly unlikely that he could have gotten that information on his own. The jury, including the foreman on the jury, a Marine Corps veteran, found Aang guilty on almost every charge. Aang was found guilty of every murder count but one. As of my writing this, Aang remains on San Quentin's death row. Side note. The illustrious John Douglas of the Behavioral Science Unit of the FBI played one of the Lake Ang rape torture murder tapes for Scott Glenn as he prepared to star in the Silence of the Lambs movie. Now that sure sounds to me like a tape that the jury didn't see. <laughs> Which is very fucked up and weird. Um, we should probably discuss the body counts. I don't think I made it very clear before. If you were to check Wikipedia or Lord help us, Murderpedia, they both cite a range from 11 to 25. 
This is misleading in my opinion because there is probably reason to believe that 25 is actually the lower estimate, not 11. In terms of identified victims, there are at least 16 that like we have names for. And then yes, several bodies like on top of that. I will read off their names, hopefully in the spirit of honoring them. Donald Lake, Charles Gunner, Maurice Rock, Cheryl Okoro, Randy Jacobson, Harvey Dubbs, Deborah Dubbs, Sean Dubbs, Paul Cosner, Clifford Parentu, Jeffrey Gerald, Michael Carroll, Kathleen Allen, Lonnie Bond, Brenda O'Connor, Lonnie Bond Jr. Without speaking ill of the dead, several of them were loosely involved in the drug trade, as is so common often with these serial killer sprees as well. And I probably don't need to reiterate, right, how Lake and Ng's tactic of stealing and bearing weapons was very Operation Gladio. Now, it's time to finally talk about what we're talking about here. Let's talk about cricket. Charles Ng's defense team would write, There was a conspiracy in this case, but that conspiracy existed between Leonard Lake and his girlfriend, wife, ex-wife, girlfriend, Clarilyn Ballas, a.k.a. Cricket, and no one else. The existence of the conspiracy is evidenced in Lake's diary. Cricket read the diary and knew of the Miranda Project as early as 1980. She also assisted Lake by recruiting potential female victims to be photographed under the ruse of portraying him as a professional photographer. Lake and Cricket created a homemade video of themselves in March 1983, it featured them cavorting nude on a bed, giggling, engaging in various sexual antics, and interspersing erotic conversation with plans to lure women into Lake's web. They are shown looking at photographs of women during a break in a sadomasochistic sex episode, and joking about the women as potential victims of the Miranda Project. Cricket knew Lake was a fugitive from the 1982 arrest. She knew Lake assumed the names of other people and she introduced him under a false name to numerous people." Unquote. My words here, it's also not disputed that Cricket paid Lake's bail and he fled, right? Like there's already a history of being an accomplice in various ways. Now, from everything I've been able to read, from every single source, nobody disputes that she did all those things. Although Eng's defense team said it, the prosecution did not directly argue any of these points. Cricket literally participated in this criminal conspiracy to abduct women as part of Operation Miranda. Now allow me to quote from passages from an article enchantingly called Clara Lynn, A Deal with the Devil by Jim Holt. On October 26, 1992, Prosecutors in Calaveras County, where it's believed as many as 25 people were murdered by Lake, granted Claire Lynn, quote, full use immunity, unquote, from prosecution in connection with 18 of those murders, including the killings of two young families. From the beginning, Claire Lynn had suspicious ties to the activities of the murderous duo. This is the woman who, according to trial evidence, pressured young women into posing nude for for photos taken by Lake. She allegedly forged signatures on a credit card belonging to a Lake murder victim. She hurriedly retrieved personal items from Lake's home the night he was arrested. She corresponded with Aang while he was in prison. She owned two weapons, a James Bond style handgun, my words here, a Walther PPK, kept in a hollowed out book. Just normal people, non-spy things, right? and a handheld, fully automatic machine gun with a silencer. What did she know that would prompt prosecutors to extend her immunity for charges including murder, conspiracy to commit murder, aiding and abetting murder, theft, and receiving stolen property? In exchange, Claire Lynn was expected to, pro to provide prosecutors with truthful and voluntary testimony. But Clara Lynn, nicknamed Cricket, was never called in to testify for the prosecution. Calaveras County District Attorney Peter Smith would not comment on Clara Lynn. 
Between 1985 and 1992, Claire Lynn provided nine statements to police regarding her ex-husband and Lake's partner, Charles Eng. But none of those statements were presented at Eng's mass murder trial. The problem for the prosecutors was that they lacked hard evidence linking Eng to the killings. There were no witnesses, no DNA samples, and no fingerprints except for Eng's print on a wine bottle. Despite this, they never called on Claire Lynn to testify. Claire Lynn's immunity deal does not sit well with many of the victims. Quote, I'm very angry with her, says Lola Stapley, whose son Scott was shot and killed. I think her hands are as dirty as Aang's or Lake's. Sharon Selito, sister of murder victim Paul Cosner, says she is too angry over the deal given to Claire Lynn. They made a deal with the devil, she says, about the prosecutors who crafted the deal. It never should have happened. They got nothing for it. I hope she gets punished in the end. She talks as though it's all over, Selito says, referring to Claire Lynn's recent statements. Well, I hope it comes back to bite her in the ass. I almost threw up when I heard her say she felt bad for the victims. Unquote. I also found other newspaper articles where Cricket complained about receiving death threats via phone call. My words here, right? Now, you know we have to get extremely weird here to wrap up. We have to ask ourselves, why on earth did Claire Lane, a.k.a. Cricket Balas, get such a sweetheart deal? If you're listening to this, you probably know the answer. She must have had something on someone powerful. Possibly a whole network, right? That's how these things work. Literally, why the fuck would they give her full immunity otherwise? People could theoretically bumble their way into losing a case. People don't bumble their way into granting full use immunity for completely useless witnesses. Like, don't be naive. It's frankly not serious to assume it's anything other than that. Ng's lawyers explained, quote, After being given immunity, Cricket told the police that she and Lake had conversed on the subject of cutting up Gunnar with a chainsaw. And also, quote, Cricket was deeply involved in sadomasochistic sexual practices, as was Leonard Lake. Her participation in the Miranda Project gave her ready access to the sexual slaves that she and Lake intended to capture. Unquote. You remember when the feds took evidence out of Cricket's home? Six bags worth of evidence, including what pretty much sounds like child born from when she worked as a teacher's aide, right? No members of the Ballas family were ever arrested. Don't even get me started on her parents. Like, they also knew somehow. Like, how fucked up and weird is that? Now, I said we were going to get really weird. Dave McGowan cites Claire Lynn Ballas herself saying that Leonard Lake had an affiliation with a San Francisco witch's coven. McGowan also cites other friends of Lake who stated that Leonard Lake would boast about membership in a secret death cult. Lake also worked with kids at a local 4-H club which would later be the target of allegations of ritual abuse. We're talking about Lake and Ng abducting and snatching people for a broader network. We're talking about human sacrifices. We're talking about snuff films. Child porn. We're talking about straight Henry Lee Lucas hand of death shit here. The Fall Guys were both US Marines who very well could have been programmed to kill. We're talking about Lake's mother being in on this shit. So too was Cricket's family. Like, Lake's mom was there when the police showed up at the cabin. And, of course, it was Cricket's, like, dad's cabin. Like, this is intergenerational shit. This is some kind of network. And we're talking about the feds covering it up. To wrap up, I will read from a passage from Program to Kill, which discusses what sounds to me like a similar operation. And I quote, On the U.S. side of the border in 1985, a ranch was uncovered in Careville, Texas, not far from Johnson City, Texas, the birthplace and childhood home of President Lyndon B. Johnson. The ranch, run by a family of German immigrants, was found to be holding 75 human slaves, many of them acquired when they were young teenagers. 
The property was patrolled by armed guards who kept the slaves chained together and routinely tortured them by applying ca electric cattle prods to their tongues and genitals. Whenever one of the slaves was killed, the body was burned to dispose of the evidence. The Texas Rangers, who maintain a museum in Johnson City, eventually raided the property after routinely ignoring steady reports of strange happenings at the ranch. It took the state of Texas almost two full years to bring the case to trial. When it was all over, the rancher and one of his sons received extraordinarily light sentences for their crimes. 15 years for one, 14 for another. Another son was acquitted and walked away a free man. A media disinformation campaign portrayed the entire sordid affair as a trumped-up case, but investigative journalist Gordon Thomas noted that the trial transcript indicated that it was nothing of the sort. Thomas has also written of another ranch in Southern California that evidence collected from a variety of sources indicates caters to powerful pedophiles. The ranch is located immediately adjacent to one of the numerous U.S. military bases that pepper the southern half of the state. The property has a rather ominous history, having previously served as a concentration camp for Japanese Americans during World War II, and later as a deprogramming center for returning Korean War veterans who it was said had been brainwashed. According to witness statements, children from around the country have been abducted and transported to the covert location, never to be heard from again. Once there, they are held as slaves to feed the depraved desires of the powerful, well-connected pedophiles who torture, abuse, and at times kill their young victims. One man who may have worked at the ranch, according to reports cited by Thomas, was serial killer Leonard Lake. that I'm going to have to stop making conclusions here. For sources today, of course I used Program to Kill, The Politics of Serial Murder by Dave McGowan. I used the book Die For Me, The Terrifying Story of Charles Ang Leonard Lake Torture Murders by Don Lassiter. I used the excellent article Clara Lynn, A Deal with the Devil by Jim Holt. I used the article Charles Ang Cheating Death by Patrick Bellamy. Charles Ng and Leonard Lake, The Motherload Murders by Bill Kelly. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. I appreciate sticking with me. I know that this was a rough episode, but just have a good one, and God bless.
Wow! <laughs>